the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office and music room for the sake of the cause. Today on the program, we're going to hear a conversation with Brian Stiller. He's the author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. If you think American history is fascinating and how things fell into place, hey, you take a world tour of the spread of Christianity, now that's something with eternal implications. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the top news story, depending on where you happen to be seated, is the winter storm warning that was issued for the Portland metro area, blizzard conditions expected in the Columbia Gorge. Now, we're being told, and I've asked James Glenn to join me to talk about all of this because he's really into weather. We're being told to get ready. Snow is on the way. Now, the National Weather Service has issued a winter storm warning. It cautions residents of the Portland-Vancouver areas against a series of storms. They're expected to bring a mix of frozen precipitation to much of the region, region rather, today and tomorrow. It extends for 24 hours beginning at noon today. Forecasters said the first round of winter weather is likely to bring two to six inches of snow to Portland which has gotten only a trace of snow so far this year. Okay, James, you have to weigh in on this because okay. I think for a lot of us, we're in the position where, yeah, another big storm is coming. It's going to fizzle, and this will all just be a big joke a couple of days from now. What are you hearing? Because you really are kind of a weather guy. Yeah, you know, I follow a couple of weather, what I would refer to as weather nerd groups on on social media and stuff. And I also, there's a blog that I follow. that uh, That's where I get most of my weather information. It's actually from a blog that's run by... Mark Nelson from Channel 12. And uh, there's some great weather people in this town. Mark Nelson, I just kind of, a couple of years ago kind of realized, at least by my opinion, seemed to always be the closest to what was actually happening. And he's a true weather nerd himself. So I just kind of, he kind of became, quote unquote, my weather guy. Um, and he is basically saying that this is going to be one of our biggest winter weather events of his career. Of his uh, career. Of now, his that's saying career. something. He basically puts it up with January 98, January 04, and December of 2008 as the big ones the meteorologists remember. The difference with this one, and this is good, is that because it's so late in the season, uh, we're going to warm up a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know, because I remember that was a big problem with 2008, especially. Uh, that snow stuck around for, what, a, a week afterwards? I remember trying to come into the station, and it was dicey in a different way every day because it was just getting more and more ground into the ground. Uh, but uh, it's uh, he's saying a trace to four inches tomorrow, depending on where you're at. The further south you are, the less you're getting. And then an additional two to ten inches falling tomorrow night through Saturday midday. And um, basically, again, it'll be, you know, the South will get less of it. He describes it as drawing a straight line from Hillsborough to Gresham and North. That's where the deep stuff will go. And as somebody who lives about three blocks on the border of Hillsborough, I, I was 
saddened to see that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm right in that line between yes, Hillsborough and Gresham. So. so, I mean, it is. I mean, I my understanding is that it'll be deeper the further north, but I think to I think it would be you know fair to say that we could be looking at you know you and I you know at least six to eight inches. Wow, it's hard to imagine. You know, what was it about a week and a half, two weeks ago? We had that unexpected uh, snowfall, and it was kind of fun seeing snowfall. Yeah. It, it, I sort of had forgotten. At that time, I think we were still in January. It's January. We're in the middle of winter. It shouldn't be surprising to see snowfall. Here we are now in early February, and we shouldn't be surprised to see snowfall, but it does seem uh, unexpected and a little bit later than our mindset tends to think we ought to be subject to this kind of a snowfall. So this should be taken seriously. That's what you and your uh, your blogger, Mr. Nelson, seem to be telling us. Yeah, and I mean, the good news is on this particular one, it comes on a holiday weekend. Um, That's true. The, the, the warming is not supposed to start until Sunday evening. Um, so we have Monday to kind of get back in action, as it were. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's not as interruptive as perhaps it was going to be. I mean, you know, it, it it destroys a lot of people's, um, you know, potentially their their Valentine's Day plans, I suppose. And, uh, you know, our first opportunity to go out to restaurants this weekend. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously, if you're going the delivery route, tip extra well on this weather. Yeah, but, absolutely. Whew. Yeah. But, well, you know, um, you know my it's, main concern pretty bad. My main concern is tomorrow happens to be my grand great nephew's birthday. My little Tice is going to be five years old, and we were planning on Saturday to have kind of a reverse birthday parade uh, in that rather than all of us coming to their home, which wasn't physically possible, they were going to go from house to house, all the people who would normally attend his party on a Saturday. So whether or not we're going to be able to celebrate his birthday in that way on Saturday is my primary concern. Most of us by now, we're pretty used to sheltering in place. We know what to do. We've got our supplies and all of that. Um, but special events like, as you said, Valentine's Day, and more importantly, my little Tice's birthday, that's kind of where I'm going to be focusing my attention. What can happen on Saturday as a result of what's happening today and tomorrow? So we'll continue to keep an eye poised on this. And any insights you have, James, are welcome because, again, you're kind of a weather nerd, uh, which is a compliment, by the way. Uh, and you can help us maybe understand the, the one thing what's I would reliable. Say- the one thing I would say to point to this being that why I have faith in, in you know, because normally I'm a, it's just gonna, it's it's not happening. You yeah, know, you're the I'm, skeptic. I'm, I'm the skeptic. Uh, but all of their all of their computer gear that they run their uh, projections on have been the same for more than 24 hours. That's not common. Yeah, and that yeah. usually all means right. something is a brewing. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, be prepared. My um. My goal today, and we'll be finished, you know, this afternoon, my goal is to go to a an office supply store and buy a couple of reams of paper. If I can just get there and back before the weather event, um, I'll be a happy woman. We'll see what happens. Well, one of the things that I've been focusing my attention on here at home, overseeing the care of my mom, who celebrated her 90th birthday a couple of weeks ago, back in December, is trying to get her signed up for the COVID vaccine. Now, for me, it's kind of a two-phase thing. One is to get her physically on whatever list or process that's necessary to do that. Well, I'm happy to announce that I successfully got through the initial stages of all of that. The other one is to communicate with her doctor, her primary care physician, and make sure that her specific physical challenges um, would uh, or should disqualify her from the vaccine. I want to make sure that I'm covering all of the bases. But I have to tell you, it's not an easy thing. Um, Three days after lots of seniors who are 80 and older who are now 
apparently um, eligible, tried pretty unsuccessfully to reserve the hottest ticket in town. I was among them. I've been working on this since Monday, and that's a COVID-19 vaccination appointment. Seniors are are getting another chance to try again. That started this morning at 9, Portland area. uh, They have two mass vaccination sites uh, that's going to open 4,500 new appointments for booking for time slots through February 23rd. Now, appointments can be made by visiting covidvaccine.oregon.gov, then clicking on the blue rectangular box, let's get started, which, by the way, was not on the screen. I had to look everywhere to find out how to enter into this process. So while we're being told that's going to be on the screen, it wasn't there. And answering the questions in the chat tool, which I did eventually find. The vaccination times uh, can be secured by calling 211, but wait times could be hours long. So if you're serious about it, make sure you have stuff to do. Well, organizers plan to open the new appointments for booking today, even as they announced late yesterday that thousands of vaccinations scheduled this week at Portland International Airport, they've been canceled because of the pending snowstorm. So this is very tenuous at this point, but visiting covidvaccine.oregon.gov um, and looking for the invisible blue rectangular box will open up the chat tool. Now, you may need to get there in some other way because that's how I ended up having to do it. But I'm feeling pretty good about myself trying to take good care of my mom. And I know others of you may be doing the same and some taking care of yourselves. So just wanted to give you the latest on that. Well, as you probably know, the impeachment of citizen Donald Trump continues when we return in just a few moments because we do need to take a break. I want to talk about House prosecutors uh, who have continued their process. Uh, We'll take a look back at what happened yesterday. And of course, they've continued today. That will be followed by 15 or is it 16 hours of Republicans or I should say the president's defense team. It's not Republicans. It's the defense team uh, that will argue against uh, impeaching Donald J. Trump. A second time. We'll tell you more about uh, some of the highlights of all of that. And we'll look at some of the day's headlines as well. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon, promising to be the weather event of the season. Hey, later in the five o'clock hour, we're going to hear from Brian Stiller, author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. Looking forward to considering the remarkable, miraculous spread of the Christian faith. And he's uh, chronicled that in his latest book. Well, as you know, the impeachment of Donald J. Trump, private citizen, continues yesterday. The six, um, I should say, the Democrats' House managers, they uh, began and continue to make their case to disqualify him from seeking future office. Well, the prosecutors argued yesterday that the former president not only is responsible for the events of January 8th at the Capitol, but was involved in a premeditated effort after he ran out of nonviolent measures to keep power. That's a quote. Well, day two of uh, Donald Trump's second Senate impeachment trial was the first full day of Democrats' House impeachment managers, or prosecutors, if you will, to present an argument of up to 16 hours before Senate. They played audio from frantic police communications and again deployed much dramatic video, some of it previously unseen security footage of the assault on the Capitol. The House impeached Trump on a single charge of incitement of insurrection in connection with the events of January 6th, in which a mob breached the building, roamed the halls, rummaged through offices while lawmakers hid. Some key takeaways. Well, first, deliberate 
premeditated incitement. Well, since President Trump left office on the 20th of January, House Democrats are asking the Senate to convict him and disqualify him from running again for the presidency or any other federal office. That really is the heart, since he's no longer uh, in office, of what they're looking to achieve in this um, impeachment 2.0. Commentators viewed Representative Eric Swalwell's Uh, as the most surprising member of the team of House impeachment managers because of his own association with an alleged Chinese spy. Uh, He's a firebrand. He made a national name for himself since 2017 on the cable news circuit by asserting that Trump was in league with the Russian government, which was proven to have been false, has said that evidence that eventually would surface to prove him right, but it didn't. Well, his argument in the uh, uh, Senate chamber, rather, was that Trump's plan was always for a violent riot in the Capitol. So this predated, you know, events of uh, early January. He says this was a deliberate premeditated incitement to his base to attack our capital while the counting of the electoral college votes for president was going on. And it was foreseeable, especially to Mr. Uh, president Trump who warned us um, he knew what was coming. Swalwell said Trump spent $50 million in legal defense funds on ads running through the 5th of uh, January that attacked the election results showing democratic nominee Biden's win while he tweeted it for supporters to come to the protest in Washington. Swalwell also pointed, and again, this is one of the House managers, pointed to Trump's numerous tweets over weeks claiming the election was stolen. This was never about one speech, Swalwell said. He built this mob over many months. Well, the California Democrat said President Trump had no evidence for his claims. The election was rigged. Another um, highlight, if you will, um, it was sort of like a reality show. After rioters breached the Capitol that afternoon, news reports said the president initially did nothing to stop it. Representative uh, David Cicilline, he argued that Trump was derelict in his duty for not trying to stop the attack by urging his supporters to stop. The truth is, the facts are that on January 6th, he said, Donald Trump did not once condemn the attacks. He did not once condemn the attackers. In fact, the only person he condemned was his own vice president. Well, Cicilline said that as hours passed, White House staff uh, urged the president to take action to stop the riots. Uh, Raskin, another of the uh, House managers, said President Trump essentially was the ringleader using an old cliche to illustrate his point. His case is much worse than someone who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater, he said. It's more like a case where the town fire chief who's paid to put out fires sends a mob. Well, during her remarks, uh, Delaware um, uh, Stacy Plaskett, uh, I should say Democrat from Delaware, Stacy Plaskett, uh, Islands uh, from the Virgin Islands, another impeachment manager and a former law student of Raskin at the American University, stressed that President Trump had every reason to believe the mob was violent. He knew who he was calling and the violence they were capable of, and he still gave those marching orders. Democrats repeatedly have referred to the president's remarks on the 6th at the rally near the White House before the riot, in which the president says, if you don't fight like heck, you're not going to have a country anymore. Trump's defenders have argued that such words are typical political rhetoric. Well, the Twitter account called Trump War Room uh, showed a tweet by Raskin from September in which the Maryland Democrat used the word fight like heck um, when the Senate was prepared to debate confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. So not altogether unfamiliar language there. Also, the um, one of the highlights was the notion that they ran out of nonviolent measures Uh, Trump intentionally pushed the violence in Washington to hold on to power. That was the argument made by Representative Ted Lieu, an impeachment manager with a reputation as a Twitter troll who's critical of Trump. 
How did our exceptional country get to the point where a violent mob attacked our capital, murdering a police officer, assaulting over 140 other officers? How did we get to the point, he argued, where rioters desecrated, defiled, and dishonored your Senate chamber, where the very place in which um, uh, in which uh, you sit, referring to um, later accounts in the Washington Post and elsewhere, Cicilline said Trump instead was interested in calling newly elected Senator Tommy Tuberville to urge him to slow down the election certification process. He first accidentally called Senator Mike Lee, Cicilline said. This was the singular focus of Donald Trump during this bloody, violent attack on the, the Capitol. I have to admit, now this is just me, I have to admit the dramatic terms, and this is wrong, I'm not condoning the violence or anything that happened, but the dramatic tones that are being applied here, because these senators' lives were at stake. These men and women, their lives were at stake. They were fearful of what might happen. I would, I, I think I'd have more respect for what's being said if a modicum of that concern for Americans who suffered through the summer of love, if you will, in which their livelihoods were destroyed, in which their lives were threatened, in which violent mobs, and I'm not referring to the peaceful protests that also took place, I'm referring to the violence that many of them defended. Somehow the lives and livelihoods of those people, not not that big a deal, but when it comes to these men and women, their senators, I mean, we ought to be in sackcloth and ashes, um, mea culpa, even if we weren't involved and didn't support the whole thing. Anyway, it's just rather interesting to me that their self-interest is sort of seeping out in the middle of all of this, just just saying. Anyway, uh, they go on to say that the uh, Rhode Island Democrat added that GOP members of Congress asked White House staff to appeal to the president to tell the rioters to stop. He abdicated his duty to us all, Cicilline told senators. We have to make this right, and you can make it right. Well, just before the Senate adjourned for the day, uh, Senator Lee asked that comments um, the House managers attributed to him be stricken from the trial record. Presiding officer, um, who is uh, Senate President Pro Tempore Patrick Leahy, seemed unclear what to do about his demand, but eventually called a vote. Well, it went on from there. Some of the other highlights. They were doing this for him. Uh, the argument being made by the Democrat managers are saying those who broke into the Capitol believe they were doing the bidding of Trump. Another House impeachment manager argued uh, they did it in plain sight, proudly, openly and loudly. Representative Joe Neguse of uh, Colorado said because they believe they truly believe they were doing this for him. This was uh, their patriotic duty. They even predicted that he would protect them. And for the most part. They were right. Well, I'm not sure what protection he's referring to. They're all being prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Neguse noted how long it took Trump to react with a televised video statement after the rioters broke into the Capitol. The Colorado Democrat played a 10-minute video showing the president saying the words, fight like heck, as supporters chanted, stop the steal, along with footage showing rioters who had breached the Capitol chanting. They also charged that the president inflamed his base. Representative Joaquin Castro joked that as a Texas Democrat, he is used to disappointing uh, election outcomes. Speaking to the senators, he said that they recall in their own elections when an early count uh, indicated something different from the final result. He said, however, arguing that Trump tried to quit while he was ahead. President Trump knew that he uh, you can't just stop counting votes, but he wanted to inflame his base. There was a a purpose behind all of this. Also, they argued that um, another impeachment manager argued that not a single judge supported 
uh, or stood behind uh, this uh, this effort. Representative Madeline Dean focused on Trump's actions opposing election results in closely contested states such as Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, where Trump's legal team challenged the outcomes. Well, Dean noted that Trump lost all of the challenges, which isn't an accurate statement. He lost many of the challenges, but he didn't lose them all. So uh, there's a lot of cloud around what actually happened. Nonetheless, she said not a single court, not a single judge agreed with the election results were invalid or should be invalidated. Now, that is a true statement with regard to the outcome, but not with regard to the means by which uh, some of those outcomes were achieved. And I think it's an important nuance in understanding what happened. When he couldn't win in court, she argued, he took his case to state legislatures, noting that Trump's lawyers held a cell phone to a microphone as the president called into a meeting in Pennsylvania with state lawmakers. And the back and forth, well, I shouldn't say back and forth because this is just one side that will be followed by the other when the 16 hours have concluded. But those are some of the highlights from yesterday. They continue today and will for the next two days as the president's defenders have their opportunity to answer the charges. Hey, we need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back with some headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us as the snowpocalypse presses in. I want to mention a couple of things before moving on to uh, the day's headlines. Every month we here at KPDQ, we're giving away a new book from various authors. Well, this month we're giving away Fish Out of Water. It's written by Eric Metaxas, one of our favorites. He says, my search for the meaning of life had an arc that I absolutely could not appreciate at the time. Everyone's story is different. We, we are all on a journey, even when we don't know it. Well, this is a truly crazy story of how I found what I wasn't even sure existed. And yes, It's true. I know I'm scratching my head. I have no idea what the book is about, but Fish Out of Water is the title. You can enter to win a signed copy of uh, Fish Out of Water online at kpdq.com. You and I will both thoroughly enjoy what he has written. And I also want to remind you in response to church cancellations due to the coronavirus pandemic, we here at 93.9 KPDQ have created a church service live streaming page at kpdq.com with broadcasts of local church services. So if you are feeling isolated, lonely, or just want a little something a little different, you'll be able to hear encouraging messages and worship from home with local live streams. And if you like your church to be included, you can let us know by clicking the church service live streams banner on our website. Again, just go to kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile app. Some great resources as we shelter in place. I know a lot of churches are now open to limited numbers. Others are in a position where staying at home is still the best option. So we want to make it possible for you to fellowship with other believers at some distance. While the Trump team turned the tables on the Democrat Party's impeachment managers on Wednesday after they claimed once again that the former president's fight like heck rhetoric on the 6th Uh, in Washington, helped spark the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Well, the war room, as they're calling Trump's uh, team, tweets um, uh, posted online included quotes from lead Democratic impeachment manager, Representative Jamie Raskin, whose own words were well reflective of the president's, as well as Representative Joe Neguse of Colorado and Eric Swalwell of California, all using the same phrase or similar phrasing in their past statements. Well, also targeted was U.S. Representative Ted Lieu, who in 2017 gave his version of former First Lady Michelle Obama's when they go low, we go high remark. I like that, Lou said at the time, but I like better when they go low, we fight back, end quote. Well, Wednesday was the second day, as I mentioned, of former, uh, former President Trump's Senate impeachment trial after the House last month charged him with inciting an insurrection in connection with the Capitol riot. 
In other developments, Jim Jordan points out that the Democrats are ignoring the fact that Trump urged the D.C. crowd to protest peacefully and patriotically. And Utah's Mike Lee says the trial statements about him were contrary to fact. He gets the record revised. Shannon Bream from Fox News says Democrats are risking making Trump an empathetic figure for the post-presidency impeachment. And MSNBC's Rachel Maddow falsely claims that Fox News didn't air the Trump impeachment trial, attempting to make a point. Well, they did air the trial. President Biden is dodging a question about punishing China over their handling of the coronavirus. The president sidestepped the question on Wednesday on whether his administration would attempt to take action against China over its early handling of the pandemic. He unveiled plans to review U.S. policy toward Beijing after meeting with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and some other top military officials at the Pentagon. Well, after a pretty short news conference, um, The president was asked whether he had any interest in punishing China for failing to disclose critical information related to the pandemic's severity. I'm interested in getting all the facts, Biden said, in response to the question. He has uh, pledged to take a hard stance toward China following years of tense relations between Washington and Beijing. Former President Donald Trump repeatedly uh, repeatedly referred to COVID-19 as the China virus during his term in office and accused the country of withholding evidence regarding the outbreak. The media was outraged, but somehow now that he's out of office, they're less um, critical of the use of that reference. Biden's remarks came ahead of a planned phone call with Chinese President Ng, his first conversation with Xi since becoming president. More on that later in the program. In other developments, President Biden has laid out his prescription for U.S.-China relations in his first call since taking office with uh, Xi. And Biden has unveiled a Chinese task force at the Pentagon to chart a strong path forward on Beijing. Well, the World Health Organization is under fire for concluding that COVID-19 was highly unlikely to have come from a Wuhan lab. There's nothing to see here, ladies and gentlemen. Move on. Uh, The president's new target for reopened schools is behind where the U.S. is now. Meanwhile, Rush Limbaugh is continuing to battle advanced lung cancer. The producer of his program issued a statement on Twitter on Wednesday as the conservative media icon continues his battle against advanced lung cancer. Our prayers are with Rush as he continues to fight the illness um, uh, he has been afflicted with. That's James Golden, also known as Bo Snurdly. We are still praying for a remission. Uh, thanks for all your prayers, kind words, and wishes for our rush. God bless you. Well, Limbaugh has been uh, off the air since February 2nd. Radio host Ken Matthews is filling in for him, uh, at least did on Wednesday, and posted a past photo of himself with the 70-year-old Limbaugh. In other developments, even in the midst of all of this, still, Limbaugh slammed the Washington Post argument that Trump shouldn't have have a presidential library. They're an abject fear, he says. And Olivia Newton-John, she says she's feeling great since her cancer diagnosis some three years ago. She's talking about her daughter's upcoming wedding. So there is hope. Well, Jeep has yanked um, Mr. Springsteen's Super Bowl ad after his DUI revelation. I just recently lost a young man, a friend. I used to go to church with his parents just about a week or so ago. DUI, it's no small thing when it's a celebrity or someone unknown driving while under the influence of either alcohol or drugs is a serious matter. This young father left behind a young widow and a young child. Well, MSNBC's Andrea Mitchell is uh, being mocked over her attempt to fact check Senator Ted Cruz. And California, uh, the California governor's news conference was interrupted by chance of, you guessed it, recall Newsom. Rioters tried to break the door down of the Portland Police Association office. No big surprise there, and no arrests were made. Again, no surprise.
Democrats are seeking to kill um, the right to work laws of 30 or rather 27 states with a um, pro-union bill, just as the teachers unions put the potential corruption on display nationwide. And Disney has fired Gina Carano over politically incorrect tweets. We've been talking this week about uh, whether or not our communication will be allowed to be heard by others. Well, the star is very popular. She stars is one of the stars of the Mandalorian series. I've never seen it. She was fired because, according to a Lucasfilm spokesperson, her social media posts denigrating people based on their cultural and religious identities are abhorrent and unacceptable. Well, her agency, UTA, also dropped her as an actress. I have no idea what uh, they're referring to. But the truth is she is a conservative Trump supporter, and here has been a long and open effort to get her fired for that alone. John Daniel Davidson said it's hard to think of an outcome that would better prove um, Gina Carano's point than Lucasfilm's firing her at the behest of a woke social media mob. And one would assume she must have said something horrific. Simply associating with Trump is enough to be canceled these days. Eric Erickson uh, says Lucasfilm seems intent on destroying the Star Wars franchise by catering to the woke. And Abby Johnson says next on the cancel culture list, Gina Carano, uh, the left simply won't allow a difference of opinion anymore. What cowards we are with you, Gina. Molly Hemingway says we canceled our at Disney subscription tonight. In other news, Democrats are using security footage in their case against Donald Trump as the impeachment trial continues. There were some fireworks on day one, as you may already know. As Davis questioned Cuban's decision to eliminate the national anthem from the Mavericks game, another story notes the NBA has announced that all of its teams will play the national anthem before games uh, in keeping with a longstanding league policy. The statement appears to be a direct response to the Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban, telling his team to stop playing the song before Four games. The Dallas hockey team is using uh, this opportunity to announce the playing of the national anthem is a time-honored tradition, and the Dallas Stars will continue to perform the Star-Spangled Banner prior to our games at National Airlines Center. Well, the Cuban subject came up in the White House press conference as well. Intolerance elevated to virtue. Democrats are starting to see the job issue connected with killing the XL pipeline. Not sure where their attention was focused before this moment, but Mr. Manchin's call echoed remarks by Richard Trumka in a recent interview um, with Axios on HBO. The president of the AFL-CIO criticized Mr. Biden's decision and said the Laborers International Union of North America was right to say it would cost a thousand existing union jobs and 10,000 projected construction jobs. Beyond extreme uh, environmental groups on the left, it's hard to figure out just who this move by Biden pleases. Turns out there's another group who loves this, celebrities. Of course, they're pretty well fixed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I want to remind you in the second hour, great interview with Brian Stiller, author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. It's a history worth uh, considering putting things into perspective. Also want to remind you that the Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise is still on. You can join Alistair Begg and Laura Story on the Deeper Faith Alaska Cruise August the 28th through September 4th. You can dine with new friends. Imagine that, dining with friends. Explore beautiful parts of Alaska. Enjoy a refreshing experience and teaching from Alistair Begg from Truth for Life and music from Michael O'Brien. Register today at kpdq.com. Normalcy is on the horizon, ladies and gentlemen, and you can find a lot of it on this uh, upcoming cruise. 
Well, again, looking at some of the headlines, Senator Raphael Warnock, a new member of the uh, U.S. Senate, and the organization he chaired for three years, the New Georgia Project, could be in pretty hot water after the Georgia State Election Board advanced a case against them based on accusations they didn't deliver voter registration applications on time in 2019. That's according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, he was, of course, one of the two Georgia senators, now newly seated senators, that tipped the balance of the U.S. Senate. The board voted on Wednesday to refer the case against the New Georgia Project to the state attorney general's office to continue that investigation or pursue prosecution, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, a spokesperson for the state attorney general's office said that she was unable to comment on active matters. But procedurally, how this works is that when the file is provided to our office, we will proceed with our own legal review to determine the most appropriate course of action. Well, the new Georgia project was, uh, which rather was founded by Democrat Stacey Abrams, is accused of delivering 1,268 voter registration applications to Gwinnett County after the 10-day deadline set by state elections rules. Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has previously called out the new Georgia project for its practice. Uh, He is the chairman of the state election board, but mainly votes as a tiebreaker. The uh, board rather voted to advance the case three to zero with its only Democrat, David Worley, recusing himself, according to the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Warnick is identified as a respondent in the case, but was misidentified as CEO instead of chairman of the board, a position he resigned in January of 2020, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we'll certainly uh, follow that story to see if there's anything anything there. Well, dozens of vehicles collided on highway on a highway rather in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, icy conditions in Texas have led to a massive pileup that's in Fort Worth involving dozens of vehicles as authorities urged residents there to stay home. Fort Worth police confirmed that there were five fatalities and an unknown number of people injured at that time. Just the images were were shocking. The number of vehicles, including both passenger vehicles and 18 wheelers involved in between 70 to 100, at least the last count. But the number could end up being much higher as first responders assess the uh, the scene earlier in the day. Multiple videos posted on Twitter showed how quickly the icy roads turned Um, a traffic jam into a disaster. Well, the same conditions that led to the incident have also made it difficult for local agency to conduct rescue operations. The current numbers are not known with information changing by the minute. Uh, We don't have any firm uh, on total numbers of fatalities that were comfortable to release, they said earlier in the day, but a very serious situation which uh, should sober us if we do in fact experience the um, weather change that Uh, we're being told to expect in the next couple of days, well, today and tomorrow. Well, in other news, YouTube is banning a pro-life news outlet for violation of their coronavirus policy. Apparently, they have yet to tell LifeSite News what they did to trigger this sudden and permanent ban. Um, But these days, YouTube and other social media outlets don't really feel the need to explain. They just shut them down. Biden White House is now saying that most immigrants will be turned away at the border citing COVID concerns. We'll see how that works out after the invitation has been extended. California Governor Newsom says that they're working to vaccinate peasants. I'm sorry, I'm a little confused. I thought California was the rather sophisticated state just to the the south of Oregon. Peasant, I I didn't realize there was a feudal system and there were peasants there, but California Governor Newsom referred to the peasants in a bizarre and strangely unself-aware post. Well, many of the responses on the page are 
pushing the recall, as one might expect. And of course, I'm certain they are peasants. Well, impeachment managers were hyped with emotion with the unseen footage in the Capitol riots, a lot of emotion in the uh, case being made at this point. The table will turn tomorrow when the Republicans, or rather, I keep making that mistake, when rather the defenders uh, will have their opportunity to answer the charges. Team Biden is erecting a new tent city in Texas to handle the massive influx of illegal immigrants welcomed by his policies. But as we're now being told, um, will be turned away. Gun control advocates say that they are confident of, ex- of um, executive action from Biden after the White House meeting. So gun control, front and center. Americans are reporting vote fraud, uh, say that their claims are being repeatedly dismissed by the FBI. And a COVID spending spree has the deficit at about $736 billion in the first third of the year. Uh, House Democrats are proposing a multi-billion dollar COVID-19 relief health package. And the uh, Biden Justice Department has asked the Supreme Court to save Obamacare, which hasn't aged well. Dozens of math-challenged former Republican officials are in talks to form an anti-Trump third party. And why stop it, too? Well, the CDC has recommended double masks to help protect against COVID. I'm going for the uh, plastic garbage bag myself. It just seems like the safest alternative. Pharmacies say that they can handle a massive ramp up of COVID-19 vaccination distribution, but they lack the supply. And that seems to be uh, the problem. I thought at the snap of a finger at the end of the Trump administration, the new administration is going to be all over this and everything would be managed. But apparently it's a little more challenging than they were willing to admit during the campaign. CDC, fully vaccinated people don't need a quarantine, need to quarantine if exposed to covid Again, that's a quote from the CDC. Fully vaccinated people do not need to quarantine if exposed to COVID. I think there's probably a little skepticism based on uh, the CDC's um, tendency to move around a bit, but that's the latest. Hope and change has been busted. Biden's new target for reopened schools is behind where U.S. schools are right now. But it sounds good because it has the word open in it for about five minutes. Well, President Biden is bringing up China's human rights abuses and unfair economic practices in his first call with Xi Jinping. I'd like to know in what context and in what way. And Fed Chair Powell says rates will stay low for a while, citing a bleak jobs picture. Guess, is that good news? I'm not really sure. Meanwhile, in the social justice caliphate, NBA says all teams must play the national anthem after the Dallas Mavericks stop playing it. YouTube has completely banned LifeSite News, removing all their videos. And a hospital has dropped the term breast milk for chest milk to be inclusive of transgender people. It's almost comical if it weren't so serious and tragic. So it's no longer breast milk that, you know, is the physical Um, part of the body that produces milk. It's now chest milk. Facebook says a new algorithm will reduce political content. My question is whose? What kind of political content and whose? So they say a new algorithm, I have no doubt, will reduce political content on their newsfeed. Hmm. And Larry Flint, pornographer and self-styled First Amendment champion, has died at 78. He has gone on to meet his maker. I hope in his final days he was prepared. You know, it really requires that you trust in G- all the stuff that he'd done over the course of his life. What matters is his relationship with Jesus. What, what happened in these, anyway, you kind of get the idea. Great news, everyone from the Washington post sweatpants are no longer a defeat because every day you get dressed 
is a win. So if you're looking for something positive to carry with you through the rest of the day, there you have it. Well, on this day in history, 1990, Nelson Mandela is freed after 27 years in captivity. 1929, the Lateran Treaty is signed with the with Italy, rather, recognizing the independence and sovereignty of Vatican City. 1945, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin signed the Yalta Agreement in which Stalin agrees to declare war against Imperial Japan following Nazi Germany's capitulation. 1979, followers of Ayatollah Khomeini seize power in Iran. 2006, Vice President Dick Cheney accidentally shoots and wounds Harry Whittington, a companion, during a weekend quail hunting trip in Texas. 2008, the Pentagon charges Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and five other detainees at Guantanamo Bay with murder and war crimes in connection with 9-11 attacks. 2009, Representative John Dingell, who first went to Congress in 1955, becomes the longest serving member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He would become the longest serving member of Congress in June of 2013, surpassing Senator uh, Robert Byrd. Combined House and Senate services of 20,995 days. Finally, 2013, with a few words in Latin, Pope Benedict, he does what no pope had done in more than half a millennium, announces his resignation. The bombshell comes during a routine morning meeting of Vatican Cardinals. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Hey, coming up uh, for our next couple of segments, we're going to hear from Brian Stiller from Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. Now, I, I love history. I love, um, you know, looking at the origins of a nation and the trajectory of a people and so on. I, I love history and I love American history and ancient and all of that. But if you want to know a history that's fascinating, that God's, has God's um, hand all over it. Look at the history of the spread of Christianity. It is a miraculous story. And if we if we don't understand that history, I think it, it um, makes us a little less hopeful about our own future and God's plans and purpose moving forward. So we're going to talk with uh, Brian Stiller about that uh, for our next couple of segments. Also, at the end of the program, I've invited James Blend to join me. We're going to talk about the winter storm warning and how seriously to take it all. He's a bit of a weather nerd and maybe uh, help us put into perspective what to expect over the next couple of days. We've all heard the common talking points uh, from the left that conservatives are destroying democracy. Well, that response is uh, to the claim is the same time and time again. We're not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. In fact, to make that statement now, you can be roundly criticized. Well, this leads us to ask an important question. Are there any differences between the two? And if so, why does it matter? Do, are they simply words? Do they reflect something more than just a perspective on how we should move forward? Well, the answer is there are profound differences between a democracy and a constitutional republic that are pretty critical to every aspect of American life, whether we are aware of it or not. Now, these are three quotes from founders of our Constitution that remind us to defend our constitutional republic with all our might. I begin with Alexander Hamilton, who said, real liberty is neither found in disposition, disposition, despotism, or the extremes of democracy, but in moderate governments. Hamilton recognized the first of three harms of real democracy. Democracy excludes the minority's rights. It reminds me of the classic saying, democracy is like two wolves and a lamb voting on what to eat for lunch. But a republic is a well-armed lamb contesting the vote. 
Well, in recent months, we've um, seen attacks waged on two important aspects of our republic, the Electoral College and the filibuster. Now, those who argue against these two see both as a threat to democracy. After all, they argue a candidate shouldn't win the presidency unless he wins the popular vote. Well, the issue with these claims is they exclude the minority. Hamilton rightly saw that in a democracy, the majority have the right to take away the rights of the minority simply by being the majority. Well, take past issues like slavery or uh, indentured servitude or present issues like gun rights or religious liberty. In all these areas, the majority has the ability to seize the right of the minority because democracy does not balance power. The founders saw uh, the horrific consequences of letting the majority take control power or total power. So they instituted a system that ensured that everyone's opinion mattered. Now, it may not have felt like that, but the system recognized the potential of bulldozing segments of the population and tried to mitigate that from happening. Now, the Electoral College ensures the interest of every state will be considered in our federal elections, every state, large, small, coast to coast. The filibuster guarantees that the party who is not in power still has a say in policy. Every aspect of our republic has been carefully crafted so that the minority and their rights will not be stripped away at the behest of the majority. Now, Thomas Jefferson is the second founder to see profound issues with democracy. Now, you may argue that he was not a man of flawless character. He was not. Of course, neither am I. But Jefferson said the Republican is the only form of government, and we're not talking partisan, we're talking about a form of government. The reform the Republican is the only form of government which is not eternally at open or secret war with the rights of mankind. Now he recognized the secret war that occurs under a democracy, a war for power and control. We're witnessing it today. The secret war is fought in many political systems. There is a reason Plato said dictatorship naturally arises out of democracy. And he was neither Republican nor Democrat or independent for that matter. The founders knew of this secret war well and set out to erase it from America. They achieved this by the separation of powers. If you remember your 10th grade government class, and my guess is you don't, there are three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive. Each of these branches has been given a a distinct role and each role differs from each branch. The quest for absolute power is voided when there is no absolute power to achieve, a reflection of a Republican form of government. John Adams saw the harm of democracy when he said, remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There is never a democracy that did not commit suicide, end quote. Well, Adams knew that democracy is hard and often uh, fraught with human error. Because of this, democracy often leads to a government takeover of the people organized by the people. That's a danger we face today. Well, take the classic tale of the French Revolution, for example. After the working class had overthrown the monarchy in a quest for democracy, the majority immediately established a new man to rule over them, Napoleon Bonaparte. Democracy is hard to organize and often leads to political suicide. Democracy, and again, I'm not talking about political parties. I'm not talking partisan. I'm talking about the form of government that we are under that is under threat. Democracy never lasts long because someone new becomes appointed to rule over the masses. For this reason, the founders formed our republic in a way that the people are both heard and represented, or at least that's what they were intended to do. Representative democracy becomes their wise solution to this complex issue. Well, in this way, the majority and the minority can have their voice heard by representatives who pursue legislation for those they represent. 
Yes, a democracy is and a constitutional republic are very different, and those differences have a profound impact. And unless we understand them, preserve the one and reject the other, or vice versa, there's going to be significant changes that we may not have anticipated. For those who still choose democracy over a constitutional republic, one question. Why have more and more countries followed the lead of the U.S. by creating a constitution and separating the powers of government? What do they see that we may have forgotten? Is our constitutional republic that much worse than democracy? Well, the framers of the Constitution, the founders of the Republic, were explicit about their views on democracy. And for that reason, they looked hard and found solutions that led to what we now call a constitutional republic. Our system may not be perfect. It is not because we are instituting it. But it is one in which every voice is heard. So understanding these concepts, it seems to me, is significant. Well, as President Joe Biden issued more than 40 executive actions, 40. It's interesting, candidate Biden and politician Biden before him uh, had uh, been very critical of the use of executive orders. However, once you have that pen, you have that desk, you got that paper, 40 executive actions with less than a month in office. Democrats took control of Congress, Republicans attorney, Republican attorneys general, I should say, in the state's. Uh, appear to be poised to be the strongest check on overreach by the federal government. So they are preparing to answer uh, what they're concerning, uh, what they're uh, referring to as overreach. Everything is fair game. We are going to defend the Constitution of the United States and look out for the best interests of our states. That's a quote from Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr. He's the chairman of the Republican Attorneys General Association. It's not just lawsuits, but also working with members of Congress, Carr says, and we will try to work with the administration. Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen led 13 other attorneys general Tuesday in calling on Biden to reconsider his first day revocation of a permit to construct the Keystone XL oil pipeline from Canada to Nebraska. Knudsen advised the new president that states were reviewing legal options to protect our residents and sovereign interests. So there will be pushback despite the um, uh, one-sided partisan part uh, uh, Congress that we have now. Your decision will result in devastating damage to many of our states and local communities, he writes, even those states outside the path of the Keystone XL pipeline. Indeed, all Americans will suffer serious detrimental consequences, Knudsen and other attorneys general wrote to the president. Again, you have Republican attorneys general in states appearing poised to be the strongest check on overreach by the federal government in this um, contentious Congress. All right, coming up, we're going to uh, share a conversation with Brian Stiller, author of From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest writes that 2,000 years ago, the Christian church began on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. Since then, the demographic center of Christian populations has made its way across Europe. With a surprising growth of the Christian community globally in the past 50 years, the demographic weight of Christianity in Africa and Asia has pulled this global center south and west. Demographers now place the center of population density of Christians in Africa. 
Well, I'm referring to the book From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity, written by my guest, Brian C. Stiller. He is a global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. He previously served as president of Tyndale University College and Seminary in Toronto and was the founder and editor of Faith Today magazine. In the 60s, he served as the director of uh, Montreal Youth for Christ, Toronto Youth for Christ, and Canadian president of YFC. He also served as the president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada and uh, president of Tyndale University College and Seminary from 95 to 2009. Tyndale is the oldest standing institution of its kind in Canada. Since 2011, he has served as global ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance, a global alliance that serves nearly 600 million evangelical Christians. And Mr. Stiller has hosted a national weekly television program, Cross Currents, and is the author of a number of books. We're talking about one of them today, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, wonderful to be with you. Boy, that, that's a mouthful you just gave. <laughs> well, you had to live it all. I just had to recall it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm tired just listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about how you, you came to uh, this book and what it tells us about the Christian faith globally. You had just stepped down as a university and seminary president. You were invited to... Um, uh, immerse your life in Christian community as a global ambassador for World Evangelical Alliance. And this book really is a reflection of the focus that your, your life took from that point forward. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I was intrigued. I've always loved missions. I was raised in a minister's home uh, out in Saskatchewan, and I loved mission conferences, and I loved to travel when I was with Youth for Christ. I loved to see what God was doing globally. But when I came into this new role, with the World Evangelical Alliance. And let me just parenthetically just kind of identify the architecture mm-hmm. of the world Christian community. There are three basic world Christian communities. You've got the, the Roman Catholics, there are 1.2 billion. Secondly, you've got the World Council of Churches, which includes Orthodox, that's 500 million. And then you've got Evangelicals, which is 600 million. So those are the three world Christian bodies. And so I serve as global ambassador of this, of this second largest group called Evangelicals. When I was invited to serve in this capacity, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an old white-haired guy. I'm, I'm in my late 70s. And so as I was asked to do this, I discovered that there was something going on globally that I had been aware of, but I had never seen the magnitude. And so in doing mission conferences, people would say, give us an update of what's going globally. So I began to think more specifically And as I recognize, for example, in uh, 1960, there were 90 million evangelicals. Today, there are 600 million. Uh, Let's just go to Latin America. In 1900, there were 50,000 evangelicals. Today, in Latin America, there's 100 million. So the obvious question is, what in the world Mm -hmm. happened? And as I began to investigate, I then worked with InterVarsity Press, and decided that it was important for us to give a macro view of what have been the drivers that have grown this church. And evangelicals have grown faster in one period of history than any other religious grouping in the history of the world. And so that's what led me to investigate, both by research and then through, I've been to about 85 or 90 countries, and begin to see firsthand what was driving this church over the last number of decades. Now, before we talk about the, the answer to that question, were you surprised 
Um, and did you find that others who uh, benefited from your uh, investigation were, were surprised? Yes, they were. The missiologists, scholars, they, they tend to be uh, an inch wide and a mile deep. Uh, I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. <laughs> <laughs> And so what I try to do is go to 30,000 feet and look at the macro and see what are the major trends going on. And so what I did, I went to the scholars, uh, the, the Global Center for Christianity out of, out of Gordon-Conwell with Todd uh, Johnson, uh, a, a number of others, Patrick Johnston, uh, and then people around the world, Mark Hutchison from Australia. And as I began to work with them and I, be, and I, and I shared with them what I was seeing – they would then go back to their own studies and and respond to me. And what I found, uh, the missiologists were saying, yes, that's a fair representation. Those are the big trends. You're on to something. Now tell the story. Now, in the West, um, as you point out, it's often assumed that secular ideas are taking over and the Christian faith is... Uh, is is dying or at least restricting rather dramatically. What you discovered is is quite different, but that uh, perhaps the eye of the of, of the, uh, the the church has shifted from the West to other parts of the world. Tell us a little bit about what might surprise us about this world tour of the spread of Christianity revealed. Well, uh, you and I live in North America, so North America and Europe has worked under the secular assumption that the more scientific our people become, the more modern society becomes, the more educated we become, the less will there be need for spiritual definition of life. And so sociologists were predicting this back in the 60s and 70s. What they found, of course, that the opposite was true, that as people become more educated, as they become better informed, the materialistic core of modern Western society simply doesn't compute with what people know instinctively is or isn't true. And so in that world, there is a movement towards faith that surprises us. Now, we recognize in North America that there's been a certain stalling of, of Christian faith. And now we're, of course, into this, this uh, very disturbing uh, political debate. But even so, the, the same number of people go to church in the U.S. today as went to church in the late 50s. So there is a there is a continuity of faith, even though we have found there has been a there's been a worldliness, there's been a secularity, there has been a materialism that has taken over some of us, some of the church in the West. The rest of the world have turned to Christian faith in ways that we never believed. For example, in, in 1910, at the first World Missions Conference, which was held in Edinburgh, they said that by the end of the 20th century, Africa will be, pro- will be primarily Muslim. Well, at that time, there were 8.9 million Christians in Africa. Today, there's 542 million. So everybody that was predicting on the basis of the advance of Islam or the advance of sec- secularism and science, they were all wrong about those numbers. There is such a deep-felt need for, for spiritual life and answers that really only the gospel provides. You make the point that the metaphorical center of world Christianity has literally moved from Jerusalem to Timbuktu in the nation of Mali, which explains the title of your book. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a, a very curious thing. Uh, 
And again, we're talking about the center of density of the population mm-hmm. of Christians globally. So obviously, the center in, in three, 33 AD was Jerusalem. And then as Paul and the missionaries and the, the apostles went through Turkey and through Greece and Italy, and then as it expanded, and as the both Orthodox and the Catholic churches began to dominate, that center moved more to the center of Europe. But then as the gospel began to explode in the middle part of the 20th century, down through, Latin, down through Africa, Latin America, and Asia, again, it's the center of density began to move. And so as I was working on the book, I was uh, talking with Todd Johnson, who, uh, who heads up the Center for Global Christianity in Gordon-Conwell in Boston. And I had just read this book, uh, read this article, an old article from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Athens, or what, is, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? So I'm thinking about cities, and I see this map that Todd had developed showing that the church started in 33 AD in Jerusalem, and it began, the center of density began to move across to Europe down into northwest Mali, and this last year, that center of density was Timbuktu. And so what popped into my mind was, there's the title for a book. <laughs> and an appropriate one. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do, do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book by the title, From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. You will find it encouraging and inspiring. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking this afternoon with my guest, Brian C. Stiller. He's the author from Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. Now, in addition to uh, Timbuktu sort of being the, the concentration of the Christian faith, talk a little bit about China and what demographers can tell us about uh, the Christian faith there. Well, China, of course, is a classic example of what happens when all of our methods seem to fail. Uh, in, in 1949, when Mao took over and uh, in 1952 forced all missionaries out, it's estimated that there were about 700,000 Christians in China. In China, earlier in the century, there had been developed the idea of three self. Actually, some British missionaries had designed this idea saying that mission activity needs to work in building up the infrastructure of the indigenous leadership to make a strong local church so that it isn't just a church that's a replication of another country. And so they developed this idea of the three self, that the church would be self-propagating, self-funding, and self-managing. And that idea began to grow in China, and it began to build a strong uh, core of leaders, pastors, evangelists, and teachers in China. Well, when Mao comes in in 49, throws the missionaries out in 52, he then, thinking that he is going to eliminate the effect of the church, he institutes nationally this idea called Three Self, saying if you're going to have a church, it's got to be self-funded, self-managed, self-propagated. Well, then the, the windows closed, and we, we thought that the church was dying in China. In the late 70s, as the windows opened, all of a sudden we saw this dynamic church been primarily in the underground church, but very strong. And of course, since then, it's exploded. What Mao thought he would do by enforcing them to, uh, to eliminate any missionary influence, he did exactly what the spirit needed, which was to strengthen the infrastructure and the people of China themselves. And so 
under persecution that grew and then when persecution came off it exploded so today we moved from 700,000 Christians in 49 to somewhere between 100 to 140 million today Absolutely um, amazing. You write that um, with its relocation of the Christian Center out of its centuries-long European habitat alerts us that much is going on. Um, you write about re-expressions of faith in five major ways. What are some of the ways that the re-expression of faith are, are taking place outside of uh, its former European center? Well, remember back in the in the in the in the twentieth century here in North America, the evangelical church basically withdrew from social political life, thinking that because Jesus is coming soon, we get people ready for eternity, and we forget about the social political issues of our day. All in the late seventies, early eighties, we realized how wrong that was, and so we reengaged in social political life globally. Those who were trained by Western missionaries also initially were taught what we believed, which was to stay out of social political life. But they realized that was an an enormous mistake, that their country needed Christian leaders as salt and light. And so around the world, there is is not this division between the church being serving in the church and serving in the in the in civic society there isn't that division that we have here so that's one issue the other issue is the understanding that the gospel speaks to all of life so there's a holistic evangel that that speaks about the salvation of the individual the transforming of the person in the power and the presence of Christ the work of the spirit to lead us into holiness of life but also speaks to the other issues so that every one of us a doctor, a garbage collector, a teacher, a, a, a minister, we are all equally called as ministering servants of Christ, empowered by the Spirit, given gifts by the Spirit, and an anointing. And that has given a whole new understanding of the, of the ability of laity themselves to be empowered servants of Christ in their world. And I think that probably is the, is the most powerful element of what has happened, uh, most powerful element that has helped to drive the church over the last 75 years. Mm. Let's talk about young people. The assumption has been, and and perhaps in part rightly so, that the emergence of technology, uh, the emergence of the connectedness of the world, that young people would be less and less influenced by or interested in the Christian faith. What did your research reveal? Well, uh, you, of course, you've got two distinct worlds. You've got the, the European North American world, where young people are affected by secularism, and there is a there is a certain diminishing of interest in the traditional church that you and I have known. What I expect, and what I am seeing, is in creative uh, initiatives in finding ways to live out the life of Christ in different social patterns that I w- I've experienced. What we don't know is the, what, how this will format itself over the next few decades. What we do know is that the gospel is a, is a reviving gospel. Uh, it comes, every generation has got to decide for itself. As someone wrote, God has no grandchildren. My children have to decide. My grandchildren have to decide. And so you've got a reviving nature of the gospel by the Spirit that brings the gospel into each generation, and they will find ways themselves to express the gospel and to live out the gospel in ways that are consistent with their social experience. And so the social media, sure, it'll change, it'll re-pattern, re, re but the, the the actual effect of the gospel will simply find its way in find its way into the lives of people in ways that are, are strange and, and new to us. 
What did you hope your readers would uh, would take away from this book that gives us something of a map, if you will, uh, over time and certainly uh, in space, um, the, the spread of Christianity, its influence in places that perhaps we have not considered? Well, first of all, the, this is Christ's church. And the Spirit, the agenda of the Spirit is to make Jesus known. Over the last hundred years, we have come to understand the Spirit in new ways. And that's a major part of the book. Well, I didn't realize how unknown the Spirit was at the beginning of the 1900s. That itself has given transformation to the Church and given it a, uh, a new understanding of the person of the Spirit, the gifts that He gives to us, and His anointing and empowerment in life. That, so for people to understand that and to, in their prayer life, to accelerate the activity of the Spirit globally. That's one thing. The second is to find ways to support in creative ways, not just financially, but in ways of encouragement, indigenous churches and ministries around the world. Those are two important things. And the third is is to encourage younger leaders in engaging in public civic life, taking every aspect of society, recognizing that as the reformer once said, there's not one square inch of creation that God doesn't say, that's mine. Mm, amen. Well, the book, once again, is titled From Jerusalem to Timbuktu, A World Tour of the Spread of Christianity. You will find it inspiring, challenging, and encouraging, as I did. And I thank you so much, Mr. Stiller, for taking the time to talk with us today. Wonderful to be with you. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, they're telling us a winter storm warning has been issued for the Portland metro area with blizzard conditions expected in the Columbia Gorge. Now, we've all heard it before. I know many of us are a little bit skeptical. Get ready, Oregonians. Snow is on the way. It comes, it doesn't come. We kind of snicker and we move on. Well, James Blend, who is something of a weather nerd, I've asked him to join us to talk a little bit about how seriously we ought to take all of this. He has sources that are very reliable and have been over a period of time to help us, um, you know, kind of take this as we ought, seriously or uh, overstatement and hype, as we've seen before. Hey, James, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, weathermen and, you know, weather forecasters, they're, they're in general, there there is uh, prone to the hype as any of us are about anything. Um, but the uh, the main weatherman that I follow, uh, and just my personal opinion, I think is the best in town, is Mark Nelson with Channel Twelve, and he is basically saying that he thinks this is going to be one of our most serious events and the biggest event since December of two thousand eight, which I still remember definitely. Oh, um, I do too. I, I in fact. Uh, well, whilst you were at, you know, during the one of the few days in there, I think I slept on the floor of your office at least one night during that. I beg your pardon. It's because you were near a window and that and the heat in the building was out of whack, and so the whole building was like eighty <laughs> degrees. So the only place I could sleep was huddled up against your window, so I could stay cool. Well, I'm glad I was able to accommodate. Oh, well, yeah. let me tell you what the National Sur- uh, Weather Service is saying. They've issued a winter storm warning that cautions residents here in Portland and Vancouver um, against a series of storms that are expected to bring a mix of frozen precipitation to much of the region today and tomorrow. It extends for 24 hours. It started at noon today. And forecasters have said that the first round of winter weather is likely to bring two to six inches of snow to Portland 
which has gotten only a trace of snow so far this year. Uh, they say residents in Astoria, McMinnville, and Salem, for example, should expect a mix of rain, snow, and freezing rain. Freezing rain is unlikely, but possible in Corvallis and Eugene. Five to ten inches of snow could fall in the Hood River Valley, uh, and plenty of snow will pile up in Mount Hood, up to 11 inches possible Thursday at Timberline, and another 10 could accumulate that night. So the uh, warning advises uh, against the possibility of spotty power outages, tree damage because of wind and ice. Travel could be a challenge at times. I mean, that's very, very serious. They're talking about... um, uh, temperatures expected to fall about 33 degrees by 4 p.m. and then dip roughly to 28 degrees tonight, according to the Weather Service. Your thoughts, oh wise one. The numbers are a little bit different than what I'm seeing, but not much. This was from earlier in the day, yeah. so yours are probably more accurate. Uh, my numbers that I'm looking at for, are from uh, from Mark Nelson. Um, and if you're wondering what the secret sauce is, I, I, it's no secret. Um, if you go to Channel 12's website, they've got the weather blog. Read it. You'll always get the most interesting weather there, whether you're a weather nerd or not. So, yeah, my secrets are not secrets per se. But uh, <laughs> the um, he is saying uh, anywhere from a trace to an inch to four inches uh, in the first wave, and then the additional snowfall in the following one tomorrow night into Saturday afternoon uh, would be two to ten inches, depending on um, where you're at, giving us a total of about two to fourteen inches in the metro. And if you're wondering who gets a little and who gets a lot, um, he suggests drawing a line from Hillsborough to Gresham. Anything north of that is getting the big stuff less and less the further south you go from there to, like, Salem may not see anything. You and I are we're definitely going to, based on Mark's report specifically, you know, I think six to ten inches is certainly potentially in our future if it's, you know, gradient up towards the north as well with uh, them getting the most snow. Yeah. You know, I look out the window and it looks so pleasant. It's cold and it's wet, but it's hard to imagine that at any moment it could start snowing and accumulate. Now, we saw a little snow week, week and a half ago, and that was a little surprising as well. But this, what you're describing, this is really a serious accumulation that we need to be prepared for. So we should take this seriously and anticipate um, the possibility that wherever we happen to fit in that area that you've just described, we're going to see a little uh, a little winter weather. I mean, it is only February. It's hard to imagine that we're still in the heart of winter, so we shouldn't, I suppose, be all that surprised. But yeah. I guess I am. I mean, you know, that's certainly disappointing on some level for the kids because, you know, a lot of school districts that are doing the distance learning may not have uh, snow days tomorrow. Some will, some <laughs> won't. But there's also the holiday on the other side of the weekend. Um, so by by the time your holiday weekend is over, um, you know, there's not going to be much left. And yeah. that's kind of the, the thing about having a late, uh, and this is definitely a late snowstorm, um, you're it's not going to be around for a whole long time. It'll stop sometime during the day on Saturday, according to Mark Nelson from Channel 12, and um, not start melting for another day or so. But, uh, yeah, by Tuesday morning, things are going to be pretty, I would think, pretty pretty normalish. Well, it'll give us something to talk about, something to think about. We can make snowmen. We can make snow ice cream. Although I'm not sure that's still a good idea these days. No. Um, but it, it'll be a weather event. It'll break things up uh, just a hair and I guess find a way to enjoy it and be prepared to live through it. Wow. Not at all prepared for, uh, for snow. Not in February. I mean, you think we can get, 
you think we can get a snow day out of this? I mean, we are sheltering in place. We don't have to really go anywhere. But if this were normalcy, we, you know, we might be making arrangements to stay home. Well, that would oh. be the normal thing, yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh, to stay home—that's not necessarily an advantage anymore. You know, typically uh, Thursdays is um, one of the days. A couple times a month, I work from the station as opposed to working remotely. And uh, yeah, I, as soon as I saw what was coming, uh, just in case, I, um, after the eight and a half hour uh, commute I had a few years ago, um, I I very quickly changed that for today and, <laughs> and pivoted to working at from home, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely um, you know something to you know be cautious of, watch it out because there, there's definitely going to be some ice out there. But the good news is uh, you know it is a weekend, and you know we talk about it. Should this be snowmageddon? Should this be snowpocalypse? Uh, and there's certainly a debate there. But you know for this year, I, I think I got to go with snowdemic. <laughs> I, I think I'm with you on that. Well, speaking of snowdemic and chuckling just a bit, tomorrow is Friday, and I'm looking forward to spending a little time looking at the lighter side of the news. And James, if you will, I'd love for you to join us Absolutely. to do that in uh, to do that in part. I will also, of course, continue to follow the drama in Washington as uh, the president's impeachment trial continues. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Democrats have been given 16 hours to make their case. I don't know how much of that they'll actually use, but that will be followed immediately by the president's defense team. They will be given 16 hours. Again, don't know how much they'll use uh, to make their case that the president should not be um, uh, impeached. And then that will be followed by a number of procedural events. And if my understanding is correct, because one of the president's defense team who had asked for a delay has withdrawn that request, we should have or could have some kind of outcome by the weekend, um, possibly Saturday, possibly Sunday. So we'll certainly follow that as well and hope you will join us as we uh, take a look at the news, both serious and, well, not so serious. Hey, thanks, James, for joining us with your insight on the weather. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.